You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hi, and welcome back to the Tennis.com podcast. This is Ed McGrogan speaking with Pete Bodo. Uh, we're both in the U.S. Uh, I'm just back. Pete's been here for a little bit. Um, you know, Pete, enjoyable Wimbledon for you watching it from here stateside? Yeah, I enjoy it. You know, I really do like listening to the commentary and seeing, you know, what's interesting, following a little bit on Twitter, too. I was on there a little bit this time. You know, it's something I don't like to do with tournaments because I don't like to take my eyes off whatever action is going on. But, yeah, no, it was, it was very pleasant, very pleasurable to watch this Wimbledon and track it through the TV and on the Internet. Yeah, and, you know, I think regardless of, I think, maybe your favorite players or or maybe what stories you want to see in our case, you know, Wimbledon, I think especially almost all the sense, but in particular Wimbledon, does have a way of really delivering sort of satisfying endings after a couple weeks. I mean, you get to see these players who end up in the later rounds, you know, what they did to get there. There's so many stories that kind of merge together by the end. It's almost like sort of a drama that really inevitably always builds into something worth, you know, worth our time. And I think that's that was kind of the case with Bartoli. Um, and with Murray, of course. Well, it's know. kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, too, though. I mean, it's because it's Wimbledon, you know? I mean, yep. so <laughs> by, by definition, whatever happens there is huge. I think Bartoli was absolutely huge, totally unexpected. I mean, you know, let's face it. I mean, if you had, even if you told people that Serena and Maria Sharpo were going to be out of contention by the final, before the final weekend, who would have guessed that the winner, who would have said, oh, yeah, I know who will win, Bartoli. <laughs> you know, so, and, you know, but it was at Wimbledon. It wasn't at Stanford. It wasn't in Pattaya City. It wasn't in uh, Tokyo. So it, it matters. It's relevant and important in and of itself because it's Wimbledon. It's, it's the championships, capital T, just like the Ohio State. So there, there's always has that going for it. And, and like you said, I don't think you could have put it better there. So what I want to talk about today, Pete, is – you know, there was so much that happened during this particular Wimbledon tournament, and a lot that happened during the first week. That you know, by the end of the by the second week, gets forgotten a little bit. By the by the tournament's end, it really gets forgotten. That's why I want to raise it now. I think all everything I want to discuss here, there is something to be taken away from, and I want kind of your take as to where things go from here as it relates. Um, to these three themes. And, and the first one, we'll start with perhaps the biggest one is is Nadal and Federer. You know, both of them not making it through the third day of play here. Rafa going out in day one just to kind of announce that this is not going to be Wimbledon as usual. Federer following suit in the second round. Um, you know, first, have you heard anything on your own intel about Rafa's next move? Because really, we've heard just silence since his first round loss. No, I think anyone out there knows as much as I do, and maybe some some might know more. And if they are, they're not talking. I mean, I, you know, he's he's sort of disappeared. I think I, I really, you know, there, there's something going on here with these knees. I I believe. I mean, I think. I think Rafa's playing his cards close to his vest. You know, you saw, for instance, his reaction when people started to bring up his knee, knees again, yet again. I think, and I think at this point, I mean, not that he regrets having, you know, revealed his knee problems because he couldn't have not revealed them. But the thing is, I think he's, he, you know, he's darn sick of dealing with this stuff. And now he's in a curious position where if he's not going to talk about it, he could be sitting there in pain, losing matches left and right or pulling out of tournaments because of his knees. But he's already sort of shut that down as a theme. So he's in a very, very tough place, I believe. I don't know that we've ever really gotten 
you know, the full transparent story out of all this. I, I, I got to believe my sources who said that his doctor told him absolutely do not play Holly, Holly because of your knees. And of course, most people feel that he, you know, one of the, one of the contributing factors to his losing at Wimbledon was the fact that he didn't play Holly this year. In the past, he's always played Holly or Queens and gotten a couple of grass court matches. So he's in a very difficult position. And look, he's heading into time of year he's never liked particularly. I mean, exactly. Yeah, and and we don't really know what to what if any sort of summer schedule he. That's sort of why I asked you about that. Is it's a very unknown here, and it's so jarring considering in the spring, a not only how much he won, he also won a hard court event at Indian Wells. You know, hard courts coming up here, but he played pretty much everything in sight in the spring, starting with a very aggressive clay court schedule and really not taking too much of a breath until. You know, until now, and uh, and that's why I think we're left with a lot more questions than answers in regards to Rafa, and you know, you know, really where he goes from here. Well, Rafa is always, you know, Rafa has said from the start that he really wants to play everything. Everyone's always, it, it's been quite a while that people have thought, you know what, why does the guy just play clay court tournaments? He could win the French every year. He could add three or four masters. You know, of course, it means he's going to be ranked number, you know, three, four or five in the world, whatever, if he doesn't play the hard court and grass events. But, you know, if that's a cost of, of his knees, then then so be it. He's always resisted that, said he wants to play everything. But you've got to wonder if it's not playing in the back of his mind, if he doesn't just, you know, isn't thinking, well, gee, I mean, why don't I just, you know, focus what I got left in me on these clay court events. And and going to the second uh, half of this week one carnage was Federer, who, who goes out to Stokowski, um, four sets, and, you know, taking the bigger view, his streak of quarterfinals at Grand Slams ends nine years. That was the last time before this, this loss that he had lost, um, let alone in the first week before the quarterfinals. Um, it's a... You know, the question I kind of pose to you is, you know, is the obvious one. Does this really, in your mind, signal more types of more types of really losses like this for Federer early on in the biggest of the big events here? Um, and or is it more that or I think I think the other question along those lines is or are we are we not taking into account his consistency and relative good health for so long, and you know maybe this was just not one of his days. Hey, look, what do people want? You you you, you want to have you know forty eight straight quarterfinals? You want fifty seven? Mm-hmm. You want sixty nine? You want you know one hundred forty four? I mean, you know, give a guy a break. I mean, how many how many quarterfinals does he have to make in a row after thirty six? So no, I I think that's I think that's all kind of a hyped story. Look, Wimbledon is a place where upsets are created. This year, first week, enormous number of upsets were created. The surface. No matter what they say about the about the courts being slowed down, the bounce being different, more like hard courts, blah blah blah. You know, the bottom line is it's still grass court tennis. It's a different kind of tennis, and when it's slippery and humid and wet out there, you got to watch it because anybody can beat you. And, and there's no place that's friendlier to attacking serve and volley type tennis or even just volleying than Wimbledon is. So look, you write this off. I, I think the the wisest thing was what Roger said right after he lost to Zakowski. He came in and he said, "Well, the first thing I do is not panic," and that's I think you know the, the soundest advice he could have given himself or anyone else could have given him. Look, I mean, the guy loves to play. Unlike Rafa, he's not you know tormented by these issues. He's not. He hasn't boxed himself into a corner where he's got injuries. He wants to talk about him. Doesn't want to talk about him. People won't let him forget it. I I think he's in wonderful shape. I mean, life is good. He, he keeps rolling on until he really feels some injuries or it takes a lot of bad losses. I think it's going to be he's going to be fine. Yeah, I think a lot of people have come down a little a little harsh on uh, 
a little too judgmental based on this one result. I think I think the most you know the most jarring one is you, is a lot of people are saying, well, you can pretty much write Federer's chances off at the slams now. He just doesn't have the ability to go through seven rounds of play and sort of deal with the challenges, the various challenges going to be put forth by him by all different kinds of players, everybody targeting the backhand, and and just as a result of his, he'll be 32 come the U.S. Open, you know, a, a tournament that if he, if he did manage to win, it would be the second year in a row where all four of the big four guys would have one slam. I mean, is he in your mind still one of, um, not just, I don't want to say, just say the top contenders, is he one of the top three or four contenders that we'll see at Flushing Meadows. Oh, heck yeah. I mean, you know, geez, I mean, you know, I mean, imagine, you know, I, I don't know that he's got it in him to win, you know, three three consecutive matches over, say, a Del Potro and then a Djokovic and then a Murray or, or a Del Potro and a Dahl and a Murray or, you know, you know, those, so those are, those that would be a tough ask for him, I think, at this point, although that certainly wouldn't be impossible. You know, what's more likely to happen, frankly, is, you know, he, you know, he gets to the quarters, you know, uh, and then he, we see what the draw brings. I mean, look, if somebody upsets a Djokovic or, or a Murray in, in anywhere along the way, suddenly if he's only got to beat one or two of the guys, does anyone think that Federer cannot beat Andy Murray again or cannot beat Djokovic again? I mean, I, I, I don't. You know, I, I think he's got it especially if, you know, especially if, it, if it's set up so that that's all he needs to do. I mean, if he gets to the final or if, you know, he plays a, one of those guys in a semi and has you know, a doable final, then I think he really gets a little extra energy and a little extra motivation and stuff. So I, I think he's going to be fine. I see that streak. He's going to start a new streak of 36 consecutive quarters. <laughs> this he, he's got, I think, one streak that I think is actually coming in, into focus is um – if he doesn't already have it, it's one where he has entered in consecutive slam tournaments for the past, you know, this is going on, I think, about 13 years or so. And it's a um, sort of the Cal Ripken streak, really, of uh, of the game here. So he'll, uh, if, like I said, I, it'd, be, it'd be a surprise to not see him in the second week in a couple of months' time down the road here. So the draw, you know, what you said about the draws and how those – can determine the outcomes of everything. That's what I want to segue into into the next portion of this is at Wimbledon, you know, by the third round, which is uh, Friday and Saturday of the first week of Wimbledon, you know, we saw in the draw, we saw four women in the third round, Serena, Sloan, Stephen, Serena Williams, Sloan, Stevens, Allison Risky, and uh, Madison Keys. And on the men's draw, there was not one USA initial uh anywhere on there. There was the first time in 101 years that that has happened. And I wonder if you're going to perhaps say that that story, that new, that sort of anomaly is a little bit, in a way, kind of blown up to like what Federer's quarterfinal streak was. But what I want to ask you about both of those two happenings is, do you think that was really more a result of circumstance and the draw, really, to be specific, than about the true abilities of the U.S. men and women at this very moment. Well, look, I hate to be down on the U.S. men, but I mean, I think it's a true comment. I mean, you know, it is what it is. Nothing is more, nothing is closer to reality and truth than a scoreline. And these guys just did not get the job done. You know, we've, you know, we've, you know, John Isner's come close to getting the job done numerous times. We keep waiting for John Isner to get the job done. He has trouble. You know, he just may not be cut out for it. He may not be any better than a, a, a guy destined to drift between, like, number 12, 15, and number 30. You know, maybe that's all there is for him. Um, 
you know, it, you know, Sam Query, he's been a somewhat disappointing too. You know, he seems to be coming on strong, and then all of a sudden he'll fade and take these bad losses. No, I mean, I think you know, American men's tennis right now is not in great shape. You know, we're going to have great players again. I have no doubt about that. Simply because you know we're a big country, we have a great tennis tradition. There are people out there right now, you know, feeding their kids balls, feeding balls to a kid who could be the next Andre Agassi. You know, but no, it's not going to happen for a while. On the other hand, the women. Yeah, and and the uh, and with Query, I mean, uh, you know, to those two guys, I, I do wonder if if they've really, you know, I, they've certainly plateaued. I don't think that's a that's anything out of the line to say. But I, I wonder if both of those guys have actually peaked at this at this point in their career. I think Isner, a little bit of a late starter, he had the huge year last year. That would be, I think, tough to top under any circumstances. And Query, to me, just a few years back. Uh, I remember one specific match in L.A. final. I mean, it's only L.A., but he beat Andy Murray in this final. And he was winning titles on grass, clay, hard. He was certainly this more explosive player than I think we've seen now. And I, I kind of wonder if, if both of these guys, we've really seen the best of them already. And you're kind of left to see what happens with the roll of the dice with Sock, Harrison, and players that we may not even be discussing right now. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned Sock. I have a lot of faith in his game. I think he's got a very good game. Uh, Harrison, I don't know. I think Harrison's in a bit of trouble. I mean, I think he's really, really, you know, that game hasn't really matured and blossomed into what, you know, people expected it might be. He's looking right now like a real solid, tough, middle of the pack, you know, top 30, 40, you know, uh, maybe 20, you know, kind of kind of contender, but not really contender for those top 10 spots. You know, you really have three layers now. You've got the very top where you've got the Djokovic's, Federer's, and those guys. You've got the next group of guys who are knocking at that door, and the younger guys who might be in that group, like clearly like a Janowitz, you could see getting into that group. You've got Del Potro who could be busting into that group. And then you've got the Berdicks and Ferrer's and those real steady guys. And then you've got third tier, which is basically everybody from number, you know, 10 or 12 on down. And that's all you know, pretty mixed up, and there's really no sign of any American player, including Isner and Query, or and or nor Harrison, of busting into that second group who are right below the real elites. So you know they've got a couple steps to go. How about the women then? With all that said about the men, I think they're terrific. I think they're you know I think one thing that's happening with the women is kind of what you hope to see happening. It happened in Serbia, maybe happening in Poland now. It happened in in, in Germany uh, with Anka Huber and Steffi Graf in in that area era, you know, the rising tide lifting all boats. I think the women have something really kind of cool going on. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, people start asking about it. You know, it seems like every woman who was interviewed at, at Wimbledon, and I, and I looked at all the interviews, every woman who was interviewed, and I, I presume was by the American press asking the questions, it was always like, gee, well, so how do you feel being part of this group? Which one of you is the leader? Which one of you is, is the most talented? Which one of you has the most upside? And, you know, that, when you talk about that, this, that really builds up this whole group. Everybody from from Bethany Matic Sands on up, you know, who's, who's a relative veteran, on up to these real new, newcomers like uh, like a Madison Keys, and so I, I think that I think it's the the mood is terrific. I think the outlook is very positive. The feelings are good. Where the men, I think, are in a very different boat. You know, the men people are down on the men. You know, I, I don't believe they should be. You know, it is what it is. There's nothing wrong with being number twenty in the world, but the women, I think, there's got a lot of positive energy behind them from everybody from the USTA on down to the fans. Something special is happening there, and I think these women are going to sort of carry the banner of American tennis and to, for the next three or four years I see the women carrying the banner and not the men and that's something that we really were unsure of where I think it, it's at this point in the careers of Serena and Venus where I think a lot of people assumed years ago that you know this would be the point where they kind of fell off 
um, talent-wise, that you know that really hasn't been the case with Serena. Obviously, um, sort of time to to see what the next generation bring, brings, and uh, you know we're seeing some of these early, really early payoffs already. And I think this summer in the U.S. events here, um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how Keys, Sloan, Stevens in particular, with kind of the spotlight that'll be put back on her here after two fantastic Grand Slam tournaments already this year in Australian Wimbledon to see how they take this, um, you know, going down the road here. So um, that's number two, what I wanted to bring up. We had Roger and Rafa. We had the U.S. kind of men and women flip side here. The last thing I want to talk about is um, something you alluded to earlier, serve and volley tennis. And you wrote about this during the first week of Wimbledon. We had a couple of big examples of, Attacking aggressive and for the most part certain volley tennis working against great players. Federer, of course, goes down to Stakowski. Stakowski, I'm pretty sure, came to net almost a hundred times in that match. Um, you had Dustin Brown too, winning a few rounds, beating Leighton Hewitt. Um, you know, a very arresting style of play there with him. And what I what I want to get your take on it is, I really sort of still doubt that this is a trend that can really persist across the board of tour events, you know, among different services. It, it is a more of a returning countering game nowadays than it was before. But is it a trend that at the very least you think could be revived at this tournament, the biggest of all tournaments, Wimbledon, and, you know, could see sort of a revival in its own way down the way, down the road, you know, with players seeing what happened this year. Hey, listen, just take a little bit of sand out of the rubber coating on these hard courts, put a little more air pressure into the ball, and bingo, you're going to have, you're going to see a lot of serve and volley tennis. You know, I'm only half joking about that, really. You know, the point is the courts are very slow most places, so you're not going to see a lot of it. You will see it at Wimbledon. You could see, you know, like if we had another Wimbledon coming up in a couple of weeks, and suddenly everyone said, well, gee, it's going to be kind of, conditions are going to be kind of humid, the ball is going to be bouncing low, skidding away, slippery. More guys, you know, more guys, they're, they're going to, they would be saying, look, hey, remember what Sikorsky did a couple of weeks ago at Wimbledon and Federer? I'm going to go out and do that to Djokovic. So, you know, this is the kind of thing where, you know, the fact that you don't have another grass court tournament, you know, anything like Wimbledon, you know, it, you know it, it's going to keep the lid on this, really. But, you know, but you know, don't forget, in a couple of years, Wimbledon goes to the the week after Newport. Uh, Newport becomes a warm-up event for Wimbledon, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And you're going to have like a little bit longer grass court season with that extra week between the French and, and Wimbledon. So, you know, it's going to be a time of year when you could do some damage with serve and volley. And if you work on that aspect of your game, and especially if you get the right conditions on grass, you might be able to, you know, you might be able to get away with it. Uh, you know, yeah. so, you know, we'll, nice we'll point. You know, Yeah, nice, nice point there. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, like I said, the grass season's not going to get beginning any, any longer um, of a more of at least substantial amount, but like you said, there is supposed to be an extra week padded in there. Um, you know, thinking thinking a little bit more about what happened in the grass uh, first week of Wimbledon, there was all that talk about how the grass was, how it was treated. If that was if 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 the conditions there, the the winter, the Olympic Games, the week before. Um, last year's Wimbledon, if that had a big correlation on on why sort of attacking tennis became kind of in vogue again in, in, at this particular Wimbledon, but it really to me just seemed like players that were able to execute this time and time again, which I think is really the whole mantra of Servant Valley Tennis is that you know you really do have to be a fantastic a player of great ability of 
sort of guts to keep doing this, no matter how many times it doesn't work or you get past. And, you know, Stakovsky and Brown were guys that did it, and Stakovsky, of course, is the finest example of all, you know, not letting Federer get into that fifth set where, you know, of course the pressure can be bearing down on, on, a, on a player of his ranking at that point, and he was able to really stop the insurrection before it started. Well, one thing I keep telling people is that uh, we're writing, you know, is that, look, I mean, these everyone talks about what a great return game it is now, and again, let's take the court speed out of the equation for now. We know that has a big impact on how the game is played, but just think about this. If you even at a recreational level for these players who are out there playing on a public courts or in these local clubs and, and aren't competing at a high level, when you know that the guy is going to serve that ball and then kind of square up and get ready to hit a forehand, you can do anything you want with that return. But if you don't are not sure that that guy isn't coming into the net or he's not sort of drifting over and coming in toward your backhand side, which is your weaker return, you know, that's an entirely different ballgame. Right now, all these pros are, are free to take huge cuts right across, sending, driving the ball across the lowest part of the net at the middle with four feet of clearance to start a point. You know, that's, that's, you know, that's the coin of the realm today. And I think that if you had people putting pressure on these guys, especially particularly on services where that's possible, I think you'd see very different. Suddenly that return game would not, these guys would not look like monster Superman returners anymore. They would be, they would have to deal with some nerves and some, you know, some, some, some decisions that they have to make in a split second as the ball is being served. I'd like some of these guys to really just throw, at least throw in a little bit of serve involved, even on the slow courts, throw in a little bit now and then when you're in Cincinnati. Let's see what happens, you know, when you hit that second serve slice and suddenly for the first time in the match, in the fourth game, you're coming to the net. I mean, those, I'd like to see that, and I definitely do not think there's enough of that. Yeah, it's, 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 the state of how it's become is when players do that even once a match, it's considered a shock to people watching it, and, you know, like you said, I think, I think you put very well there, it's a tactic that, not, if doesn't have to be used exclusively, but it's a, it's just a strategy that I think, adds that other element of of you know thought to the to the returner is to give them something to think about besides you know which part of the court do I want to blast the ball back in and that's you know it's a it's a thing that I think works well at the rec level and at the pro level you know it certainly worked for a very long time and We'll see if it ends up working again at some point. Yeah, so. it's funny. Everybody's agreed to agree. That's that's my that's why I, I kind of get a kick out of it, Frank. It's almost like everybody's agreed to agree and say, okay, this is how we're going to play. Don't don't rock the boat. We're all going to do this. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's always something always happens to change that conversation, and uh, we'll see when it actually comes to pass here. So, um, very good stuff, Mr. Boda. We will uh, we'll catch up again, obviously throughout the summer and um, next week, I believe as well. We'll. Uh, talk and see what's going on in the hardcore realm of tennis back here in the U.S. So we'll talk to you then, and uh, everybody come back for the next Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. Tennis.com.